I Think Therefore I Fan podcast is generously supported by our listeners. If you would like to support I Think Therefore I Fan, go to our webpage, that's IThinkThereforeIFan.com, all one word, click on the link that says Donate, and follow the instructions. Your support is greatly appreciated. Spoiler warning time. In this episode, we discuss the Cairo Trilogy, Batman Begins, Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2049, the Harry Potter book series, Westworld, and Avengers Infinity War. You've been warned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. All right. Well, welcome, everybody. Thanks for, for joining us. Welcome. All right, Rates, what do, we, what do we have going on today? Today we have our third installment of the Popular Culture Association interviews. So today's uh, offering is a, a grab bag, one might say. So we don't have a one unified theme for today. We've got a, a series of interviews, each on their own topic. Uh, we'll be, be interviewing Lee Rich, Jim Okapal, Corey Horn, and Seth Walker. Seth Walker, yeah. So you say there's not a unified theme, but um, maybe there is one and it's just hidden. So, fun game for, for you <laughs> listeners out there. Find the unified theme. Now, what you want to do is write down what you think that theme is on the back of, say, a $20 bill um, and, and send it to us that I think they're for fan podcast and... And if you happen to get it right... Um, we'll send you a Think Therefore I Fan mug. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's that's worth talking about. Um, merchandise coming soon. For those of you who, who um, sometimes consume beverages, we're, we're producing mugs. Fancy <laughs> mugs. Snazzy mugs. I also want to point out that um, Seth Walker, one of the interviewees today... Uh, wrote a paper on roughly the same topic that he'll be discussing in the in your interview for uh, My Handmaid's Tale and Philosophy book. Oh. So if you want to read more about that, you can find that in The Handmaid's Tale and Philosophy on Remix. Great, great. And before we get to the interviews, it, it seemed like something this week of, I don't know, I don't want to overstate it, um, biblical proportions... <laughs> occurred. Um, Your book came out. My book came out. Spoiler alert. It's a book about the philosophy of spoilers. Um, it's Amazon's shipping their copies. It's in the, the bookstores. We went and, and saw one. Um, our son came with us. He was very blasé about it. Um, <laughs> at Barnes & Noble. At, at Barnes & Noble. Yeah, everything's perfect. So um, we'll have a lot more to say about that because the final episode of this season, which will come out um, four weeks from today, um, will be on um, that. The philosophy of spoilers. The philosophy of spoilers, and, and we'll talk about the book. So, in the meantime, your assignment, um, dear listener, 
is buy the book. to read buy the it. book, read it. Um, I, I don't think you're going to be able to fully internalize it by yourself. So buy a copy for everyone you know. Um, discuss <laughs> book it. Book club. Do it in the next couple weeks, and then we'll, um, we'll, we'll kick it around. And review it on Amazon. And review it on Amazon. Yeah, um, most importantly. All right. Well, um, so shall we turn to the interviews? Let's do it. All right. Here they are. We're talking to Lee Rich. Lee, what are you presenting on here at the conference? Well, thank you so much for having me on your oh, podcast today. We're delighted. Yeah. Uh, it's just great to be here. Uh, so I'm actually talking about uh, Naguib Mahfouz's The Cairo Trilogy. And, uh, you know, Naguib Mahfouz was an Egyptian author, a Nobel laureate. Um, you know, his The Cairo Trilogy is basically his masterwork. It's a masterpiece, you know, akin to maybe, say, Proust. Um, and we could go on and make more, even more comparisons. Um, I don't know how many Americans, you know, know Nagi Mafuz right off the tops of their heads, but most people around the world do. And uh, it's just, it's a combination of three novels. Um, he didn't necessarily want it as three novels, but it's published that way, you know, and that, mm -hmm. that's how it happens sometimes. And so the, those three novels are now called the Cairo Trilogy. Um, and so I'm taking a look at how Nagi Mafuz, who studied philosophy at university, how he uses... Uh, Plato's Allegory of the Cave from the Republic and Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, almost as a structure for his narrative um, on which he sort of layers the lives of his characters. So I'm talking about how you find the good life, what is happiness, and what can Nagib Mahfouz's characters in the Cairo Trilogy teach us about that good life and how it's applicable today. So they're sort of in the cave in some sense and emerging from it and then trying to be virtuous in an Aristotelian kind of way? Is that the... Yes, ex that's, ex that's exactly it. So it's it's a saga of uh, one, actually one family, three generations of this middle-class merchant family. The father, Ahmad, who's the patriarch, he's sort of this 19th century merchant. You know, he's sort of old school in many ways. Um, he and his wife have five children, but three of which are sons. Mm -hmm. And so with those three sons, Yasin is definitely the sensual life. And he takes that sensual life to the excess. I mean, he is definitely on the extremes. He does not know what a mean is if you know yeah, yeah. if it hit him in the face. The mean buster. The mean says, buster, right? exactly. Um, Fami, who's the middle son, he he's definitely the political life. And Kamal, who's the youngest son, who we spend most of our time with in the first novel and the second novel. We see him sort of as a young boy at the age of five, growing up into a young man. Uh, he definitely exemplifies the contemplative life. Um, you know, interestingly enough, all three of them um, at various points in the novel spend time in this coffee house that is actually subterranean and like <laughs> a cave. Mm -hmm. um, and so you definitely get oh, wow. not only Aristotle, but you get uh, references to Plato that if you don't if you don't know these works, you might not even recognize it. But, you know, after having studied some philosophy, you start to read through it and you go, oh, wait a minute. I recognize this and I recognize that. And it's about, you know, that is sent from the cave. Um, and one of the things I love about Mafuz's work with Kamal in particular is he really shows how difficult the ascent from the cave is. Mm -hmm. That it's not this easy thing that we just, you know, yes, you know, we, we get out into the sunlight and it's painful and then we go on our merry way. Um, but that it's this really, um, and I'm going to use a phrase from Frank Kermode um, in relation to King Lear, it's a really monstrously difficult birth. Um, and I think we sometimes end up 
languishing a bit on our ascent, and that's what Kamal does. Oh, interesting. Would you recommend this for a 13 or 14 year old? I'm thinking this would be great to have our son read. He resists philosophy if we say, we're going to teach right. us some more. <laughs> no, 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 right. no, it covers his ears. Right, I hide the vegetables so, in the, in yeah, the tasty exactly. stuff. And this is what I love. This is sort of how I approach philosophy with my students. If I can take television or film or literature and have them read a really great narrative and, you know, and sneak in the philosophy, absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. So on the one hand, I would say yes, um, you know, because it's a great narrative and, and Mafuz is an, an incredible writer. On the other hand, the three novels, I mean, all combined, it's a mm. brick. Mm -hmm. um, I read it with a faculty reading group who started out years ago reading Proust, and then they moved on, Carl Ove Kanasgard. Um, you know, so we read, you know, 30, 40 pages every week for quite some time to get through all the novels and discussed it. Mm -hmm. So the hard part is, is I think there are sections that you could definitely give to a 13, 14-year-old or a high school class or a college class to really exemplify these ancient Greek philosophers, mm -hmm. um, to read from cover to cover, it does take some perseverance. We, we do these long-term reading projects with them. See how we did really? the Harry Potter books okay. over a couple of years? We just read a little bit each night, take turns reading. Yeah. And, and discussing. Uh -huh. yeah, I mean, this is the To way. the extent that he will. Again, he's, he's got a <laughs> strong defense system. Yeah. Well, a strong sense of himself. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, literature is supposed to be discussed, right? And mm -hmm. if you can, one of the things in our faculty reading group, a few of us really love to do is we love reading passages aloud. Um, so absolutely. Now, there are some aspects of the novel that are a bit scandalous and risque, but I don't think anything more than mm -hmm. what our average <clears throat> teenagers are exposed yeah. to. Yeah, it was not to expose Instagram. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so so uh, these philosophical references that you're noticing, um, you think they're intentional on the part of the author? Absolutely, okay. absolutely. And, you know, and whenever I approach, you know, this sort of began almost as this fun exercise for me. Um, and whenever I approach some of my the papers that I end up writing that, that try to link philosophy with literature, or especially for me, television, I always think, oh man, I'm seeing something that no one else has seen before. And the minute you start to learn more about Mafuz, I mean, he studied philosophy. He clearly knew what he was doing, mm -hmm. but he does it so deftly. And not only does he take um, all the philosophers, and eventually he does start to talk a little bit about Spinoza and other philosophers, but not mm -hmm. only does he take these ancient Greek philosophers um, he also weaves in this whole structure of this family saga, um, the history and politics of, of Egypt between the wow. two world wars. So you're also seeing not just um, Kamal trying to come out of the cave and, and find the good life, you're also seeing Egypt um, becoming a modern nation state um, and, the, you know, and the successes and some of the, the difficulties with that. That sounds wonderful. Uh, yeah, that's right up my alley. Yeah. I, like, so I really enjoyed the Leonoris um, books about Ireland. The same kind of thing, right? Yes. Countries finding themselves. or Exactly, countries finding fascinating themselves. Fascinating tales. Right. And, and one of the things, and I, you know, I, re, I was revisiting uh, the Cairo Trilogy trying to prepare for this paper, and one of the things I had also forgotten about is um, you can see that, that modern Egypt is also, just like all of us, trying to, trying to ascend from the cave, where sometimes it does it really well, and sometimes... There are things that maybe we're still looking at shadows. Um, Naguib Mahfouz starts to tap into a little bit um, issues of Islamic fundamentalism versus socialism versus... You know, so he starts to weave in all of the you know, um, political aspects in addition to the philosophical aspects. But I'm more interested in the philosophical. Mm -hmm. 
Nice. So you've got some things to promote, a radio show and a book. Um, yes. Yeah, so, love to hear about that. So um, I am based out of Savannah, <clears throat> Georgia. Um, and in Savannah, Georgia, uh, we have a community radio station called WRUU, uh, Community Radio with Global Soul. Um, as we like to as we like to say, that's our tagline. Um, I actually host and co-host a weekly program called Listening to Literature, um, where I will either invite authors of recent books or sometimes uh, older books. We like to look at books from pre the present and the past. Um, or my co-host and I will pick um, some short stories um, and, and talk about it amongst ourselves. So, for example, we actually looked at Oliver Wendell Holmes' writing. Oh, so wow. Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., not the, not the Supreme Court mm -hmm. Justice, mm -hmm. the doctor. Um, you know, I'm, how many people have read his works in a while? Um, or mm -hmm. one of, yeah, one of the, the interviews I really enjoyed the most, um, I actually talked with uh, a biographer of Naguib Mahfouz, so there's still a, oh, sort wow. of a little Neat. Mahfouz connection there. Yeah. Um, in terms of books, so I'm under contract right now with Lexington Books uh, for their Revolutionary Bioethics series to um, write a book. So it's a book in progress, and hopefully you know, it will see the light of day sometime, mm -hmm. sometime soon, uh, tentatively called uh, Bodies and Body Boundaries in the Age of Biotechnology. Um, and I'm mostly interested in how our bodies are socially and culturally constructed um, and looking at those social and cultural constructions between how do I know what's me and what's not me. Um, and this changes in particular as biotechnology changes. So our definitions or our boundaries of what is me versus not me years ago might be different than today or with biotechnology in today's day and age, it might be different a year ago than it is now. I mean, it's changing very, very fast. So would you talk about things like artificial wombs? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Ar yeah. Artificial wombs. Um, one of the things I'm really interested in is uh, organ transplantation. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for example, if I want to donate my kidney to my mother, right, well, that kidney is, I can choose who, you know, the, I can choose who to give that kidney to. The hospital can't take my kidney and say, oh, we're not going to give it to your mother, we're going to give it to somebody else. So. Right. Even when it's outside of my body, I still have some sort of decision-making control over it. But at some point in time, that kidney no longer belongs to me. It belongs, it belongs to my mother. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, and, right. and I'm interested in, well, well, how and where does that transition happen? Yeah, because once it's in my mother, I can't dictate what she does with it. Um, but in looking at, uh, you know, new uh, DNA technologies, especially commercial consumer DNA technologies, right. artificial wombs, um, I don't know, the, the world, you know, our body, the world is very, very different these days. Yeah, yeah. right. At least than when I grew up. It's great when metaphysics actually becomes relevant. I mean, <laughs> bearing on our lives, you yeah, know, not just some arcane. Day, not just some arcane thing yeah. that, that, yes, metaphysics is alive yeah. and well, yeah. whether we want it Questions or not. Questions about identity and ownership and all this stuff. Right will be used to settle real issues and real courtrooms and real policies will be affected. Absolutely. So that, that's great. Well, thank you very much for talking to us today. It's been a real pleasure. Well, thank you so much for having me, and I look forward to more conversations. And uh, I say, you know, definitely check out Mafuz's work. Oh, wow. indeed. Thank you. We're talking to Jim Okapal. Welcome, Jim. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're presenting about here at the conference? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm kind of actually really excited this year. Um, I've been coming to the Pop Culture Association Conference now for almost a decade, and thematically I've been dealing with very specific issues in ethics and literature, especially at the intersections of science fiction and fantasy. And this year I'm actually kind of 
taking all of the things I've been doing for years and kind of going to the meta level and say, okay, so here's this project that I want to talk about. Ethics and literature have been strained since the beginning. Plato doesn't like literature, <laughs> right? Um, and then 2,000 years later, in the 1980s, Wayne Booth publishes this book about literature and ethics, and it starts off with this discussion about how ethics, the literary critics have no time for ethics whatsoever. And he's trying to bring it back, but he and Martha Nussbaum have focused on these really kind of high-level issues, right? Um, Wayne Booth in terms of ethics and the relationship between author and reader, and Martha Nussbaum has done it in terms of moral epistemology, right? literature is moral epistemology. And I'm like, but those are like these really abstract things, right? Mm -hmm. What about ethics the way most people think about it, what we call normative ethical theory and all the problems of normative ethical theory? Why can't we use that mm -hmm. and talk about how these things intersect, especially from the analytic tradition? Because when you talk to a lot of the people at the conference here um, that come from the literary side, they focus more on... Uh, you know, the continental philosophy. So for them, our ethics almost boils down to just Sartre and Emmanuel Levinas. Mm -hmm. And while there's great stuff there, and I think that the analytic tradition needs to pay attention a lot more to them, uh, and a few other more contemporary people, um, it doesn't change the fact that, that there's these, the two fields of continental and analytic philosophy just continue to remain separate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I want to bring them together. Nice. So the big project oh, okay. is getting people exposed to analytic ethics and say, hey, look, you know, there, we've got these great topics on integrity and complicity, right? Moral dilemmas, um, right? You've got issues about just war, the nature of moral agency. Well, this never gets talked about in terms of literature, but it's there mm -hmm. all the time, mm -hmm. right? And so if you could use that as an interpretive lens. And so let's take analytic ethics and their discussions of moral dilemmas and then talk about them in terms of something in pop culture, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Science fiction, fantasy, any form of text. And then uh, take the trolley problem and mm -hmm. issues of doing and allowing, right? Mm -hmm. Whether you pull the lever or not. Mm -hmm. And of course, to me, there's movies that deal with it, but uh, the first Batman movie with uh, Christian Bale mm -hmm. ends with... I know you're not going to kill me, says Ra's al Ghul. And Batman says, yeah, but I don't have to save you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Doing, allowing in the trolley problem because we're on a train that's about to crash, right? right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's right there. And it became, then that part of it, right, so that the conference part is getting the, these, the academics to come together from these different disciplines, mm -hmm. philosophy, literature, mm -hmm. continental analytics. But then for me, philosophy, people don't know what it is. But if you can talk about it in terms of pop culture, and for me that's science fiction and fantasy mostly, right? If you can talk about it in terms of that, maybe they can find that there's something interesting here. So, yeah, um, so do you think that these two approaches, uh, the continental and the analytic, these two two uh, cultures can speak to one another? I mean, do you think that they don't have messages that are inherently opposed? No, I don't. And. Here, I'll give you an example about the, like, the really specific thing that I'm working on. Right? Um, my framing device for that discussion I just talked about is the Blade Runner movies. Okay. And the very end of the 
Blade Runner 2049, right? K is dying in the snow, right? He's just taken Deckard to see his daughter. And Deckard looks back at him and goes, who am I to you? Mm-hmm. And it's this, he could have asked that question in the first movie too, right? This guy, they've been chasing each other, trying to kill each other, and all at the last moment when Deckard's going to die, Roy Batty reaches out and he saves him. And Deckard doesn't say anything at that point, but he could have said, why, why did you do that? Who am I to you all of a sudden? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to me, as an interpretive lens, we can start talking about moral status, that whole big area usually related to um, ethics and animals. And of course, mm-hmm. that's a literary criticism topic. Mm-hmm. But of course, the moral status of animals, the moral status of artificial intelligence, the moral status of the environment, mm-hmm. right? Moral status as issues in business, mm-hmm. right? There's a much larger kind of area of moral status of which the literary people are connected to but only in a small little part of it and so there's an inroad Mm -hmm. and you can start talking about it and then you start reading the people on the analytics uh, the people on the continental side and the literary stuff and they're putting forth marxist based theories of moral status of animals there's nobody on the analytics side doing that but it's the same topic Mm-hmm. So you've got a connection, mm-hmm. right, right? And then, so there's already a point of connection. Yeah. It's just that people haven't been in the same place at the same time to talk about it, or published in the same place to mm-hmm. talk about it, or had exchanges so that we could talk about it and realize that this is going on. So I want to talk about moral status, mm-hmm. right? Because one, that becomes an interpretive lens. But the other thing it does is then you start realizing that literature. If you start reading literature that way, with that lens, and then you switch your standpoint and say, well, what if we see literature as moral argument? Well, what's going on in those movies again? It's not Kantian. That's for certain. Right, right. (laughs) Right? It's not the question of, you have moral value because you're an agent. Right? You're a moral agent, therefore you have moral value, therefore we can do this, and you're a moral agent because you can act morally. There's not a whole lot of people acting morally in these movies, mm-hmm. right? And then you realize that in the original source novel from the 60s, and it still plays a role in all the movies, is this notion not of cognition, but emotion, mm-hmm. empathy and sympathy. These are the things that distinguish humanity from not humanity, from moral st- having moral status to not having moral status. And then you kind of start thinking, well, Kant doesn't is the way we teach him, right? doesn't really have much to say about empathy other than maybe he's degraded, but that's at the center of it. Mm-hmm. And then you realize, well, well, then what happened with, with the replicants? All of a sudden, they gained empathy. All of a sudden, they're the ones acting morally. They're behaving like moral agents, but not because they're rational, because they've got rationality, because they developed empathy. Mm-hmm. But that's care ethics. Right. That's Nell nodding straight straight away, right? That's Carol Gilligan straight away. But notice that what that does. Analytic philosophy has been doing metaphysical and deontological conceptions of moral status, right? Your cognitive metaphysical properties is what makes you have moral status and moral agency. That's not what noddings are doing. That's not what the movies are doing. The movies are saying you become a moral agent 
because of a volition. And that volition is to recognize something else as having moral status. Mm -hmm. So it's not agency to moral status. It's mm -hmm. moral granting moral status, the act, the volition of granting moral status makes you a moral agent, mm. which is, right, Deckard is a flawed character in the first movie, right? My students often point out um, that in the first movie, he rapes Rachel. Mm -hmm. At the very end of the movie, though, that scene is redone almost word for word, and it's lovingly done. It's not a rape. Mm -hmm. Well, why? Because he raped an android that didn't have any value. But at the end, he comes to value her, and it's different. So my argument for why that scene needs to be there, because it, it's a trigger, it's disturbing. The actual filming of it caused problems for Sean Young, because it was actually quite violent, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But there's a necessity there, because that's part of the arc of Deckard, who, whether he was a replicant in creation or not, he himself becomes human at the end, just like Roy Batty, who we know is a replicant without a doubt, mm -hmm. becomes human as well, becomes a moral agent. But this is an entirely different way of thinking about both the analytic side, but also a different way of thinking about the movies themselves and the original source material. So there's this wonderful possible two-way street if we start talking about ethics again in literature. And I think that this way of talking about normative ethics avoids the two things that everybody worries about, right? Didacticism or moralizing, mm -hmm. right? Literature is just going to dump what the answers are in your head, right? Mm -hmm. Or censorship. Because mm -hmm. the way that we do moral philosophy, that's, that's not... Censorship's a moral topic, right? But most of what moral philosophy is from the analytic tradition wouldn't even get close to having to worry about either didacticism or censorship. Because we're trying to figure out problems, trying to figure out other things. And therefore, we don't really worry about those things accidentally happening and impinging, right? As a lens or literature, as a moral argument, right? If it's an argument, it's open for criticism and not didactic, right? And if you're kind of then seeing uh, these lenses, the lenses are not about censorship. They're about autonomy. They're about just war. They're about complicity, mm -hmm. right? Those are, it, it, so you're not getting into censorship, you're just, there's all these other moral topics. Right. So to me, that's what's hopefully exciting, and that I can hopefully bring to, I'm trying to get people to see this. I mean, I've actually gotten a few few people that I meet here every year, that we talk about it, and we're just on stuff. board. Yeah, they're on board, they're talking about possible collaborative research, because um, the one person I don't think I've really mentioned in all of this is that once you kind of get to a conference like this, right, from the analytic tradition to all these continental people, mm -hmm. right, uh, Levinas's ethics, I have a hard time understanding them, but I'm beginning to get an understanding. And it turns out that at the core of Levinas, from what I can tell, is basically issues of moral status. Interesting. And then he Levinas starts to care ethics, so to speak. I'm not even sure if it's a care ethics, right? I mean, his. It, it, I don't know enough about his background and the way his Jewish background influences what he's doing and other things like that. I'm just starting to dive into it. Mm -hmm. And I keep trying to find, okay, so who's the person I'm going to collaborate with where we can have these long, deep discussions and try to figure it out, to figure out the connections and then the interesting differences. 
So I'm wondering, uh, what do you think that jargon um, plays any or puts up any sort of barriers to having this discussion? Because for me, that's what it is with continental philosophy. What well, it is, right? And I think that it, but that, but that goes both ways. Okay. The speaking of different languages. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're speaking a different language, right? And one of the things that uh, one of my colleagues uh, recently retired used to teach our uh, 19th and 20th century history course. And one of the things that he did, and he and I talked about it, is he, um, he did part of that course using Russell and Wittgenstein, right? And then part of it using Heidegger and, and uh, Derrida and other people, right? And one of the things that, that came out when he started thinking about this is they were talking about the same question, just in different modes. Mm -hmm. And the modes were such, one scientific, one literary and aesthetic, mm -hmm. that there were walls on both sides, right? There was like no man's land in the middle, and there were mm -hmm. two walls put up, and the walls were constructed with jargon. And of course, and then, you know, apparently there was a, a history of one particular philosophy department where the analytics and the continental people would like mm -hmm. basically run everybody out, and it caused bad blood for decades. Mm -hmm. But that's over, Right. Um, and there's so many more people who can start who are starting to converse in both languages. Mm -hmm. So we're, I think the translation manuals are starting. Mm -hmm. The translation manuals are, are difficult, right? Because you've got to have people committed to just saying, I'm just in here to learn, right? I'm here to be make a friend and vice mm -hmm. versa and share ideas and grow and see the world differently. And that's what it's been fun doing this, right? Um, in, exactly because of that. Have you looked at um, Demet's book, The Origins of Early Analytic Philosophy? Oh, I haven't even heard of that one. Oh, yeah. It's, it's great. And so I had a kind of similar experience because I you know, was um, in grad school at the time and studying. When I read it, I, I didn't know when it was written. Um, you know, analytic philosophy and um, especially early philosophy language and all that. And I pick up this book and, you know, it, it sort of waves its hand at um, Frege and Russell. And yeah. Well, yeah, we all know that story. Um, <laughs> but... Um, there are origins of early analytic philosophy and Husserl and Brentano, right? Yeah. And this is, you know, all the people you've mentioned all trace back to these guys. And so the walls go up, but at, at some point there's this kind of common mm -hmm. ancestor and it doesn't have to be Plato where you say, oh, right, yeah. it doesn't go that far back. You know, yeah, no, it's I mean, sort of very recently, right? So you get this phenomenology and you can see how some portion of that makes its way into especially, uh -huh. you know, early philosopher mind and stuff that would have influenced Wittgenstein. Well, on the one hand, and then um, you know the Heidegger's and that tradition mm -hmm. on the other, um, but where they might go in a very different direction with the language, and and it looks like they're considerably farther apart than they really than, than are. They really are yeah. Because the, I mean, it, it's it, you can almost imagine it as being structurally similar to right a Kantian and a utilitarian are worried about a, the same problem, right? But they they just start talking about it differently. Right? Mm -hmm. One's talking about consequences, one's talking about the will and, and abstract principles, right? And if you are someone who's been reading both, you might have a difficult time as utilitarian understanding Kant and vice versa. And let's not even get in fact a virtue theorist comes in and goes like, why are you guys even talking about actions as opposed to character? Mm -hmm. Right? right, right. Um, I mean, if you think about those, I mean, in one sense, how can those three people even talk to each other? Mm -hmm. Right, and it takes a work like Rosalind Hurst's house virtue ethics to say, you know, virtue ethics is about action too. It's just 
in a different place in the schema, mm -hmm. right? right? But of course, she's an analytic philosopher talking other parts of the analytic language, and so you get that. So if we can start finding, though, where the commonalities are, because there are commonalities, um, then you can open that up, and I think it'll be enriched, right? I would love to go to, say, an Eastern APA, um, you know, the Central and, and the is, be is better. It's more interesting topics. But the Eastern APA, if you look at the list, it's like, it's just, we're still talking about Plato and Aristotle on the phone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, right. It's 2,500 years. <laughs> Can we come up with something new? But it's not, I mean, there's, there's great work there. Don't get me wrong. Right? But at some point, I'm like, ah, I did that in grad school. I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Right, right. So do, do you have something that you'd like to promote? A absolutely. Um, I was lucky enough, because of this conference and people I met, that um, I got hooked up with the people from McFarland Publishing. And uh, last year, they asked me if I would consider being their uh, an editor for them for their new Ethics and Culture series. Right. Oh, and so there are, uh, yeah, thank you. There are three things that are already in the works. And just to kind of give you an idea, there's some good variety here. So the, hopefully the first thing that will come out sometime this year is a, a reader on Levinas mm -hmm. entitled Ethics After Post-Structuralism. <laughs> um, and so it's meant for like upper level undergraduate, graduate level reader courses in theory, ethics, in a literary and a literary criticism department. Oh wow, everything coming together. Right. So, wow. but it's it's what's nice about this is there's it's really about Levinas and the people that talk about it and a reader so you can get a background of that theory for them. But I their original proposal has a Marxist piece in it, and I said this is the key, this is the one that unlocks it because this is the one where here's someone who can talk both. They're talking the ethics and politics and they're mentioning Levinas, and Rawls and Derrida, and Foucault, all at the same time, and comparing and contrasting them. So like, this could be the piece that really drives the whole series, right? Then we have uh, another one coming out on ethics and comedy um, that's the result of a conference that was done. Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I, I do science fiction and fantasy. Um, very first thing I ever did in this was uh, uh, Harry, Harry Potter and Free, free will and determinism. Mm -hmm. I cool. co-authored with somebody in the English department. Yeah, oh, that's neat. Yeah, it was wonderful working together. But, you know, I, I'm i now hopefully putting together this volume on ethics in science fiction. And the idea is I wanted about an equal number of, say, analytic philosophers looking at science fiction and bringing analytic ethics. But I wanted people who were doing Levinas and stuff as well because I'm hoping that there'll be you know, five chapters from analytic ethics that those people pick it up, but then read the stuff by Levinas, and those people pick it up because there's Levinas discussions mm -hmm. of, say, Orphan Black or whatever, and then they'll pick that up to read the, the companion chapter about uh, care ethics mm -hmm. on Orphan Black. Nice. Right? And so it's like you have a reason and can start seeing and start getting into it. Um, and so, yeah, there's that. And the, the next thing I actually have coming out is as all part of philosophy and pop culture series. They're bringing their book out on uh, Blade Runner 2049, which is where I go into detail about um, looking at how Kantian ethics versus care ethics are going to understand what's going on in the movies and understand mm -hmm. these, these final scenes, right, that have so much commonality and, and kind of help you interpret the whole thing, right, from these different issues about moral status and moral agency and questions of who counts and who doesn't. 
you know, new questions, right, in the last one. Does Joy have moral status as a completely digital being? She's not even physical anymore. Mm -hmm. that, that was the nice thing. It's like now they're stretching it and extending the question. Can we extend mm -hmm. moral status to a digital being, right? Because her loss is one of the more um, devastating losses in the movie. We get that in um, season two of Westworld as well, right? Yeah, yes, same, we do. Oh, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. But more, the more about Westworld I learn um, and watch, the more I like it. I can't quite get my wife to watch that. <laughs> a little bit too, I think, too violent for her. Okay. Yeah, mine will watch it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah. Thank you for letting me come and talk to you for a bit. Okay, we're talking to Corey Horn. Corey, what are you presenting on here at the conference? Uh, so today, my conference is uh, about the rise of public philosophy, um, possibly as a discipline. The last few years, three or four years, I've been working with um, Professor uh, Dr. Terrence McMullen at Eastern Washington, and we've kind of developed a, uh, a mini program. <laughs> it's like an informal program at Eastern that tries to do public philosophy through K-12 education and uh, various public events around Spokane, Washington. Oh, you're speaking to our hearts. Yeah. We, we've done a little philosophy for kids, um, especially yeah. when our son was in elementary school, and then we hold, host these public events. And, yeah. So, yeah, oh, that's great. That's what, Yeah, tell We're us more about work. what you do in that program. Um, yeah, so the K-12 side, we worked with uh, Dr. Jana uh, Marlone at UW, uh -huh. who... Um, who kind of started this P for C movement in Seattle, Washington. And then she, I don't believe, I'm not sure who runs the program anymore for mm -hmm. the larger group, which is um, Plato, uh, oh, philosophy, yeah. learning, and yeah, teaching organization. Yeah, we, we have an affiliation with them as yeah. well. Yeah, so we've been working with them. And basically what we did is we set up after-school programs at six schools in Spokane um, and went after school once a week to do various things. So in elementary or in middle school, we uh, just did various like thought experiments, um, logic puzzles, stuff like that to kind of just mm -hmm. get them thinking. And in the high school level, we uh, tried to introduce ethics bowl. Oh, nice. Uh, which <laughs> Richard runs the intercollegiate I, I'm ethics I'm the director of the intercollegiate yeah, ethics bowl. It was, it was a challenge. Shameless plug. <laughs> um, that's all right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We have lots of overlap as yeah. it turns out. Yeah, we, we got one going in Utah. Um, we're part of the high school bowl, and mm. it's tough to get schools to come on board. Yeah. Right? The people are very busy. It's, you have to compete with all the other after-school sports. Right. Um, mm -hmm. We're not in the schools like during the 9 to 5 day, so it's hard uh -huh. to establish that connection with kids when you're just there once a week. Um, so we've like we've hit bumps in the road, but it's stuff that we're trying to work through and build, um, hopefully get stuff you know smoothly running soon. Uh -huh. um, so yeah, the K twelve has been our has been our bear to wrestle for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Great. Have, have you brought any pop culture into it? Yeah. So uh, kids don't engage with philosophy as much as people think they would. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> yeah. Mostly zero. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, we. What I found is that generally, when you use pop culture, it helps bring the information to them. Right. Um, so I use various books, movies, etc. Um, to get them to engage with the content. Um, and there's two schools, uh, Deer Park Middle School, and I can't remember the second one that was our pilot. I believe it was North Central High School um, that we did this at. And what we found is at the beginning of the year, it's very pop culture heavy. Um, we're constantly bringing up movies, show like showing clips and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. nice. By the end of the year, um, 
they have moved past the pop culture stuff and just want to engage in the content. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I mean, we're still not reading. Pop culture is a gateway drug. Yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're not using like philosophical treaties, but we yeah. are talking about concepts rather than mm -hmm. um, pop culture. And then if we are talking about pop culture, it's a way for them to try to um, make sense of something they don't understand. Mm -hmm. What I found with my students is a great uh, window into various ethical questions is uh, what Thanos did in yeah. Infinity War. Have you used that at um, all? I haven't. Because okay. we're yeah. trying to... Yeah. Like, you can't... You have to be careful when you talk to, like, in K-12, because you start bringing up, con like, ideas of mass murder and stuff like that. Yeah. It tends to okay. go a little, yeah. okay. yeah, a yeah, little yeah. out of there, but... Um, I can imagine they just start talking about um, the Avengers or something, and they just want to talk about that. And yeah. Avengers. Yeah. yeah. philosophy <laughs> Yeah. Uh, they definitely do tend to trail off, so it, you have to get really good at allowing them to kind of go off trail um, enough to get it out of their system to then bring them back, because something I've noticed, especially with younger kids, is if you stop them, then that's all they're going to think about, and then you've lost them. Mm -hmm. um, they basically are just going to sit there and think about that one thing they wanted to say, so... It's better to let them kind of derail the conversation for a minute than yeah, <laughs> have yeah. them fidgeting around. <laughs> so um, are you on part of a larger panel uh, about uh, public philosophy? No, not this year. Okay. Um, usually, like in the past, I've done stuff with uh, Dr. Mm -hmm. Kevin Decker. Um, mm -hmm. I went to this one, this conference with him in uh, San Diego. Mm -hmm. um, and then last year, we didn't do a panel at this or um, this pop culture conference we did one at the far west pca conference which was in vegas mm -hmm. um and that one was with kevin and uh terry so we went all together and talked about pop culture at large and then um our work with the pk-12 system Where, where's the far west at next year we, uh, we live i think in... it's always in vegas oh that's great we, yeah we can we drive can, there we can drive to vegas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah after right. we're having such a great time at this one we now want to go to all of them we're going yeah. to fly to the one in hawaii and the fall hawaii's a good one yeah the, the, is it the science science, science fiction yeah. and yeah. popular cultures yeah yeah and they've yeah, got a con a with it which yeah kind of, kind of makes it neat yeah, yeah. yeah. so Cool. Well, thank you very much for talking to us today. Yeah. Pleasure yeah. to have you here. It was fun. Okay. We're here at the Popular Culture Association Conference talking to Seth Walker. Seth, what are you presenting on here? Uh, so uh, my presentation is part of a panel on uh, remix and archive um, in the digital, digital uh, culture and communication session. And um, my particular presentation is on an application of remix theory uh, to the study of religious traditions and how they develop and evolve. Um, and in particular, I'm looking at uh, Buddhist traditions and sort of picking up on uh, Stephen Batchelor's work on secular Buddhism and a software analogy that he, he presents in his work uh, where he sort of frames traditional um, forms of Buddhist thought and practice that are coming out of Asia as uh, programs that are built on top of a Buddhism 1.0 operating system. Uh, this is his terminology. Cool. And so uh, what is oh, remix theory? Oh, so remix theory. Okay, so uh, remix theory... Um, it deals with traditional forms of remix that you would think about in terms of um, audio-visual applications where you're uh, okay. taking um, something previously created and sampling from it or using it selectively uh, to, to uh, sort of create something new. Um, or, you know, uh, popular now in some of the work is this idea of something unique as opposed to something new uh, because remix theory mm -hmm. uh, inherently problematizes things like originality. So the idea that you're creating something new as like a sole creation that 
that is its own thing and hasn't been done before and is not building off of anything prior to it. Uh, it doesn't really work out that well anymore when you start applying some of these ideas. So the idea is unique, not new. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so, um, so audiovisual applications, but you're also largely dealing with the, the metaphorical extension of this concept outside of those applications into the culture at large. So thinking about um, a lot of different stuff in culture, uh, always building upon what came before. Can you give us an example? Uh, well, uh, sure. I mean, I can go with what, what I'm doing in the presentation. Yeah, um, yeah sure. Yeah, so, so I'm looking at uh, how religious traditions um, develop and evolve, like I said before, uh, sort of generally. Um, and this is part of a larger dissertation project as well of mine. Oh, great. And I'm approaching it from a critical perspective where I'm, I'm problematizing that idea of originality that I mentioned, uh, but also authority and authenticity. Uh, so the idea that something is uh, unique and new and it's its own ideas, and we're talking about theological ideas at this point too now, um, is jeopardized by the application of these types of ideas uh, because they're always building on what came before. Um, so with Buddhism, the idea that we've got this original Buddhism, let's call it that. This is sort of how Bachelor spins this. Um, at the time of the Buddha. So the Buddha's Buddhism, right? What he was actually teaching. Um, the criticism is that, you know, what we have now and what's uh, occurred uh, since the time he lived, the historic Buddha, um, is something that's filled with all this theological baggage, hierarchical agendas, uh, all, all sorts of stuff that just wasn't present at the onset. So he wants to go back to an original Buddhism. He's careful how he phrases that, but that's what he's doing. Mm -hmm. um, the problem, though, is when you start pinpointing uh, these times of origin, because there were conversations and movements and ideologies and perspectives in existence in India at the time of the Buddha, and he was playing with those ideas as he was formulating his own. Um, so, you know, the question becomes, where do you trace that origin? At the Buddha or at the stuff that the Buddha's uh, sort of mixing himself and uh, building on, like ideas of, of the self, um, ideas about karma, um, and so forth? Or do you bring it even further back to when these ideas are starting to develop based on something that came before them? Is, is it possible from now to, to get a sense of those ideas, or are we just kind of shooting in the dark? Um... Um, so what do you mean exactly? Like... Uh, so, understanding the historical context in which the Buddha would have been saying the things that, that he said, um, that might be a context that we, you know, don't have a very accurate, or at least epistemically could not know that we have an accurate um, take on. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's tough. I mean, uh, textual analysis is tough, too, because we don't have a lot of original, so to speak, documents. We've got mm -hmm. things that have evolved, things like the, the first sermon uh, of the Buddha, for instance. I mean, we've got... Uh, 15 plus translations of that in different languages and from different time periods. So it takes up a, lo a lot of analysis to, to try to decipher what was added at a later date and what was perhaps there before other parts, uh, you know, picked up on it and rephrased it a little bit. Um, so I'm wondering, um, what makes it the case that you would think that the original version would be somehow superior? Like, I mean, isn't, isn't there some intu intuitive appeal to the idea that as it progresses forward, uh, progress is made. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, that's what you would assume. Yeah, and I, it, it's interesting because with Bachelor's work, the idea is the opposite. It's something was lost, okay. um, and it's become this like metaphysical uh, carrier of, of belief as opposed to a prop propositional form of like praxis and how you can live a better life. Um, and just how that sort of got uh, twisted into its interaction with indigenous cultures as Buddhism spread um, and uh, the sort of like sociological worldview of India um, historically. Okay. What, so 
what motivated you to bring this to a popular culture conference? Uh, so really just sort of the, the digital uh, culture um, and new media um, angle of this. Can I mean, you say more about what that is? What do you mean by sure. digital culture? Yeah, yeah. So um, largely culture these days is, is getting shaped by um, a lot of the concepts and metaphors that we find in um, electronic music and in software. So we think about versioning, um, not just in terms of software versions, but in post-productive practices in music. Um, and that really relates to how, so the title of my presentation is called Versioning Buddhism. And it's the, the idea that we've, you know, we've got a 1.0, now we've got a 2.0, right? And the programs that are being built on top of these are changing slightly as they progress and move forward, just like sort of software versions do. Uh, but they're also alternate, sort of like a post-productive practice in a music mix, um, an alternative take on, on an initial recording, in other words. Okay. Um, cool. So, do you have anything that you would like us to promote? Um, yeah, so <clears throat> uh, several years back, um, uh, an old colleague and I uh, started an online magazine called Nomos Journal, and um, our original tagline was where religion and pop culture collide. And that took uh, sort of a backseat for a couple of years when I went uh, back to work on the doctorate. Um, but we're revamping now. Uh, we've, we've got the site up and running, um, trying to pick back up our momentum again, and uh, We've sort of reframed things a little bit more broadly now, too. So we're not just about religion and pop culture, but philosophical traditions and uh, meaning-making practices um, in general um, and at a, a larger level. So our tagline now is uh, pop culture made meaningful. Um, so. so if folks wanted to access that, how would they do that? So it's uh, nomosjournal.org, N-O-M-O-S-journal.org. Nice. Great. All right. Well, thanks for talking to us. Yeah, thanks a bunch. Cheers. Okay, well, um, episode 22 is in the can, and that's a wrap. Once again, everything has come up sharp enough. I did want to mention one thing before we conclude today, and that is um, it really helps us out just because of the way podcasting works. Probably a lot of you know this from listening to other podcasts. If you would go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to your podcast and review, rate and review the podcast. Yeah, it, it, it makes a big difference as to whether the, our podcast shows up on recommendation lists and right. things like that. Um, so yeah, that, that would be greatly appreciated. All right, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with the final installment from the Pop Culture Association. We've, we've got two interviews, um, and then after that, we'll be back with our regular What Do We Like in segments and, and so forth. So um, again, thanks for tuning in. Bye.